he goes on to say that while amusing, that definition is obviously incorrect because Christians have already been fighting over the proper interpretation of the book of Revelation for 2,000 years. So we know that can't be what it is. He says, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, however, all of the fighting has led some Christians to adopt despairingly a position they call pan-millennialism, which means we don't know which view of the millennium is correct, but we know it will all pan out in the end. So obviously we need to pray. This is one of the most difficult and sadly one of the most divisive portions of Scripture in all of Scripture, but especially in the book of Revelation. And uh, I'll pray for you, you pray for me. Let's, let's pray. Oh Lord, in your kindness, by your word and the spirit of God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the churches that is so beautiful and so encouraging that we would stand with Jesus all the more gladly because of this. And I ask this in Christ's name, amen. All right, Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I wanted you to say that, think about that. This is the word of the Lord. It is good for us. It is for our encouragement and to show us the beauty of what lies ahead for us. So when and where does this thing called the millennium happen? Now, there are some teachers who've said that this happened in the past. It actually happened in some form or fashion in the first century and we've seen in the book of Revelation remarkable correspondence between first century events and some of, the, some of the visions of the book of Revelation. But the view that the entirety of the prophecies of Revelation are fulfilled in the first century is very rare. We're not going to talk about it. Okay, that, You won't encounter that view unless you... I'm sorry, I think I have a screw loose this morning. Um, yeah, so... Um, it's very, very rare. You'd have to go looking for it. Um, we're not going to worry about that. But more likely and more common are views that see the millennium either in the future or playing out now. We're not sure it's going to, if you might keep doing that. Okay. 
it keeps on doing it, I'll pick that up. Thank you. Um, so there are two, uh, two main uh, views that think that the millennium could be happening now during our day or in the near future. Um, and there are many, many variations on these views. If I don't articulate your particular bent, forgive me, okay? Lest we be here all day. So um, post-millennialism is one view where, the, where we could actually be in the millennium or could be happening soon. So let's say that this is Jesus' first coming, and this, on a timeline, is his second coming. Okay. Post-millennialists believe that there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ where things get better and better, and the gospel goes out, and the world gets better and better. It's in this time sometime, and then Jesus comes. Okay. That's a view called post-millennialism. It's not as popular as it once was, but it, it still is held by a number of really uh, fantastic scholars, even in our day. Um, now, there's a second view that's more widespread, but you may not be familiar with it. It's called amillennialism. So again, this is Jesus' first coming over here. This is his second coming. And amillennialists believe that the millennium is happening during this entire time. So the time that we live in is when the millennium happens. Okay? It happens spiritually in heaven. So Jesus is not reigning on earth. He's reigning in heaven. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that view, and I'll, I'll try to explain how they understand this passage a little better. The last group that we'll consider this morning are called premillennialism. Okay? Jesus' first coming, Jesus' second coming, and a premillennialist believes that the millennium comes after Jesus' coming. The coming comes before um, the millennium. So the millennium is happening over here. And it's a thousand-year reign. Um, could be literal, could be figurative for a really long time. And it happens on this earth after Jesus comes. So um, this morning, I'd like to help us think through the passage through the lens of those um, two most common views. Um, there's not one view that is more godly or spiritual or, or intellectually superior to another view. If you hold one view, you're a liberal. If you hold another view, you're uninformed and ignorant. That's simply not the case. St. Augustine was famously Amil. Jonathan Edwards, perhaps our, one of our greatest theologians in our country, was post-mill. John Piper, who many of you read his writings, he's pre-mill. Okay. There is not a superior position morally or intellectually or spiritually. We have elders who are amill in our church, pre-mill in our church, and pan-mill in our church. Okay. Those positions all exist and probably some others. So this morning, let's look through the lens of those two most common views. The amillennial view, right? In this, in this time, all right, give up. Sorry about that. Is this good? Okay. So the amillennial view that happens in this period of time, it's happening now. And then the 
premillennial view that's happening over here after Christ comes in the thousand years. So we'll walk through the scriptures and see how those views make sense out of them um, this morning. So first of all, what if the millennium is happening now? What if we're in it? It's happening now in heaven, even as we are here this morning. How does that work? And this view may not be as... That one just died. Okay, the amelone of you may not be as familiar to you because it doesn't make for good movie scripts or end-time novels. Okay, it's not that sensational. Um, it's happening as we speak. But I want you to see the beauty of this perspective and that it comes right out of the scriptures, okay? Because it may be new to many of you. So, starting in Revelation 20, let's look at it through that lens. Um, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So if the millennium is happening now, okay, if Satan is bound now and Jesus is reigning now, um, how is it that Satan is bound and shut and sealed in a bottomless pit when he seems so active these days, right? He is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, right? How, how is he bound? And according to this view, Satan's binding and sealing is with respect to a very specific matter that uh, John tells us about, in verse 3 there it says, he is bound, he is sealed in that pit so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. <clears throat> that is to say, he's kept from deceiving the nations in some very particular ways. One of those ways is that he cannot deceive them from believing the gospel any longer. That is to be preached amongst all peoples before the return of Christ. So in the Old Testament, the message and hope of the coming Messiah was largely within Israel, it lived largely within Israel's boundaries, not exclusively, but largely. But in the New Testament, following the death and resurrection of Jesus, that message spread immediately amongst all peoples. Uh, the book of Acts, um, you see these circles in the book of Acts where the gospel keeps spreading and spreading and spreading from Asia Niner to Macedonia, all the way out to Rome, okay? From, from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth as, as they knew it in their day. In this view, the binding of Jesus happens during Jesus' first coming, especially on the cross. And there's lots of scripture that talks about how Jesus defeated Satan, bound him, uh, in his first coming, especially on the cross. So Mark chapter 3, no one, Jesus says, can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. He's talking about um, the, uh, uh, when he was casting out demons. He's saying the only reason I can do this is I have bound Satan. Right? Satan has been bound. 
Luke chapter 10. The 72 that Jesus sent out returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. John chapter 12 says something related. Now is the judgment of this world, Jesus says. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So Jesus sees Satan falling from heaven even as he gives the disciples authority to trample on his powers and the ruler of this world is now cast out and all people begin to be drawn to Jesus. The apostle Paul, we could cite him. He says that Christ disarmed the demonic rulers through the cross in Colossians 2. Hebrews chapter 2 speaks of Christ rendering the devil powerless. So throughout scripture we see this truth that Satan was, blown, was defeated at the cross, right? Through the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus, Satan was defeated. Okay. And in this um, amillennial view, the thousand years, obviously it's figurative. It's been running for 2,000 years now. It's a figurative. And we've seen that in Revelation a lot. The numbers are often figurative, Right? The number seven is often figurative. The number thousand in other places in scripture is figurative sometimes as well. For instance, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So that's like somebody else has a thousand and one, thousand and two. No, no, no. It means all of them. It's a lot. It's a, it's a lot. It's all. So it's a number that's used that way sometimes. It's symbolic here. For a long time, it represents the time we live in between his two comings. And this is a huge encouragement for missionary work, for the spread of the gospel to all peoples. Right? Satan is bound, and he cannot stop it. Okay? He cannot. God has bound him. He sent the angel. He bound him so he cannot deceive the nations. And the beautiful promise of Revelation 5, it's coming true as a result. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, Jesus, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so the gospel spreads beyond the borders of Israel, goes to all peoples with promised results, and Satan cannot stop it. As North Wake missionaries go to the nations, they go with the protective authority of the power of God against a defeated foe. And this is, in my opinion, the most beautiful part to me of the amillennial view. This truth of the binding of Satan by Jesus' cross work and his resurrection from the dead in our day um, is absolutely beautiful. Now, it's true no matter what millennial view you hold to. But this view champions it and exalts it in a way that's absolutely beautiful. Just notice something as, as an aside here. Do you notice how the devil works amongst the nations? He deceives. That's how he works. He seeks to deceive the nations. He's a deceiver. Jesus says he's a liar. He's the father of lies. And you notice, too, that his power is not that great. How many angels does it take to put him in a pit? One. 
just one angel, binds him, seals him, puts him in the pit. It's not his power. It's his deception. That's how he seeks to rule primarily. Now the passage continues and he sees thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So during this time, there are people seated on thrones, symbolically reigning with Jesus, right? There are martyrs there, people who've been beheaded. There are faithful followers who've resisted the evil anti-God rule of the beast. And they have died, and they have gone to be with the Lord, and now they reign with Christ during this thousand-year millennium. That is to say, they're reigning now. So, if this is right and the millennium is now, um, who exactly is reigning with Jesus? Right? It doesn't feel like it's me. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm reigning with Jesus most days. But, but there's a sense in which you are, right? Paul says in Ephesians 2 that Christ has raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. We are reigning. But most who see the millennium happening now see those who reign as those who have died and been raised to be with Christ spiritually. Martyrs especially, but more broadly, all who have died in the faith now reign with Christ in heaven during this time before he returns. This is another beautiful truth that this amillennial way of reading this passage exalts. Do You have a loved one who's gone before you in the faith and now has died then this truth is about them. Your uncle, your grandpa, your grandma, your mom, your dad, your infant daughter or son, they reign with Christ in the heavenlies. This is beautiful. And again, this is a teaching that's not limited to this view. We would all hold this truth. But it is exalted beautifully by the amillennial reading of this passage. Verse 5 says that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So there are... Two resurrections, right? If this millennium is spiritual and figurative and it's going on now, the first is a spiritual resurrection of everyone who's died in this period of time. Okay? They are raised with Christ. They reign with him. And then when Christ comes again, there'll be a second resurrection unto judgment. That second resurrection is a bodily one. It happens at the end of the thousand years at the return of Christ. So only believers share in that first resurrection. And the second death, he says, that is the, the death that happens at the great judgment that leads to eternal death, will have no power over them. Okay. So, that's kind of a quick flyby of how you would think about this if you were reading it through amillennial lenses. The idea that there's a millennium going on, but it's going on now in heaven. Jesus is reigning in heaven with 
believers. Now, what if it's future? What if it happens when Christ comes and the thousand years happens after that time? How would you read this passage and think about it then? Um, Well, those who hold to a future millennium see that as a natural progression from chapter 19 to chapter 20. So in chapter 19, we saw the return of Jesus, right? Verse 11, I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in Righteousness. He judges and makes war. And the second coming of Christ we read about in chapter 19. That's followed immediately in Revelation with the millennium. So in this view, the millennium comes after Jesus' return. It lasts for a thousand years. That's often literal, but it can be just figurative for a really long time. It happens, though, on this earth, not in heaven. So again, Jesus comes, and then on this earth, there's a thousand year or a long period of time where Jesus reigns on this earth. Um, In the premillennial view, Satan is fully bound during that thousand year period. The language in verses one through three, they give it full force, right? He's bound for a thousand years. They threw him into the pit. They shut it. They sealed it over. And so after Christ returns, there are a thousand years where Satan is not allowed to work his deceptive wiles upon the nations at all. He is locked up. He's not bothering anybody during that thousand years. In a future millennium, all believers, except those who will be born during that thousand-year reign and come to Christ, all believers are raised with Christ bodily, and we will reign with him on the earth during that thousand-year period of time after he comes, you and I and all believers. So that's a flyby of how to think about this if it's future. Um, so which one is right? Um, is the millennium the time between the two comings of Christ? Or is it the time after Christ returns? Um, Scholar Grant Osborne puts it this way in his commentary on Revelation. He says, this issue will not be solved until the events take place. And then we'll see who is right. And so really the best answer is we'll see. Okay, we'll see. When Jesus comes back, we'll see what he does next. And then we'll know. Um, In the interim, I think it is awesome to be at least a practical amillennialist, right? Where you cherish these truths that are exalted in that view, okay? That Satan is bound and he cannot stop the gospel from going to all peoples on this earth, okay? Celebrate that. Delight in that. Delight in the present heavenly reign of Jesus and the saints that have gone there before us. Delight in that. Um, We can and should be all about those truths that amillennialism so beautifully exalts. And honestly, unless you're a scholar and you're getting paid to decide, you don't have to pick a camp, okay? You don't have to and then fight with people who disagree with you. You don't have to do that. You know, at this point, I want to encourage you, take a posture of humility, learn from those who differ with you on these matters, and don't let uncertainty about the timing of it all rob you of the surety of Christ's reign 
and ours and of the spread of the gospel. And we'll see, right? We'll see. Um, like like uh, Professor Poitras told us a couple weeks ago, be engrossed in the story. Praise the Lord. Cheer for the saints. Detest the beast. Long for the final victory. Okay? Delight in this passage of scripture. It teaches us beautiful truths about our God and his reign. Now, at this point in our passage, both of these views turn and look to the future mercifully. They see things a little differently there, but they're happily looking towards the future at this point in time. In verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. Okay, so this all ends really well, right? The devil is thrown in the lake of fire. And it all starts really oddly. Because whose idea was it, down in verse 7, that Satan should be let out of the bottomless pit to deceive the nations again, right? Well, that would be God. Because if you notice, Satan doesn't escape. He is released, okay? This is part of the sovereign plan of God. It's not a prison break, unbeknownst to God. This is all under the sovereign plan of God. Now, issues related to the why of evil in our world are notoriously difficult. This one is not particularly any easier. But uh, Professor Osborne has a helpful thought on the why of Satan's release. But it hinges on what we saw happen when Satan is released in verse 8 and 9. Look at those verses with me again. It says uh, Satan's going to come out of that pit. He's going to be released. By God, he'll deceive the nations. They're at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, Jerusalem, representing God's people. So Professor Osborne says this about what we just read. The earth dwellers have again and again rejected every attempt of God to bring them to repentance. And now many of them are forced to experience the reign of Christ for a thousand years without a devil to deceive them. Obviously, he's one who understands the millennium to be over here. He's thinking about it in the future, that thousand-year period. He says, yet when he is released, they all flock after him in a millisecond and once again join the rebellion against God. One of the purposes of this passage is to justify the necessity of eternal punishment. This passage proves that even the equivalent of 14 lifetimes, if you grant them 70 years, are not enough to overturn their allegiance to Satan. Therefore, the eternal lake of fire is a necessity. And when you read what's going on here and you see the names Gog and Magog, they're probably not individual nations here like Russia or Iraq or things like that. Clearly here they represent all peoples in opposition to God and his people. This, is, this takes us back to Ezekiel, um, where these two entities, Gog and Magog, opposed God's people in battle, and now their names are like symbolic. Like if somebody said, man, that's like a Hitler, you know, 
That's like a Gog and Magog. It's an opposition to God and all peoples from all around the world are coming. In verse 10, the devil had deceived them and he was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So now this unholy counterfeit trinity who is behind all the evil and sorrow in our world is cast into the lake of fire. And notice here that this is an everlasting sentence, forever and ever, and that this is conscious suffering. They are tormented there day and night. And along with them, all those who sided with them will justly suffer the same fate. Again, Professor Osborne says, after a thousand years of experiencing Christ, the unbelieving nations throw themselves after Satan the first chance they get. The message is that in a billion years, a trillion years, they would do the same. Thus, they must suffer the same penalty as the one they worship, namely eternal torment. And now the focus in our passage returns back to, remember, chapter 4 and 5 in the great throne room of God? We go back there in verse 11. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And so the imagery is of heaven and earth fleeing away from the presence of the Lord and the holiness of his judgments. And this is readying us for what's going to happen in the next two chapters when there's a new heaven and a new earth that come into play. Verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the scene is what's called the great white throne of judgment, right? And books are now opened. The books, plural, appear to be a record of our deeds, our lives, okay? And they form the basis of our judgment. But there's a second book. Um, You know, let me say just a minute about those books. In particular, they seem to provide the basis of those who are facing judgment for their evil deeds because they come from the sea symbolic of evil they come from death and hades also evil where the unbelieving dead have been confined Um, but now there's a second book that seals their fate it's called the book of life and if your name was found missing from that book you're thrown into the lake of fire with death and hades and the devil and the beast and the false prophet And you will be tormented both day and night forever and ever. Perhaps the most sobering words imaginable. And that really raises a singular, super important question. Is your name in that book, the book of life? Revelation talks about this book of life a number of times. Back in chapter 13... It says that all who dwell on earth will worship the beast 
everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So if your name is not in that book, you'll worship the beast. It also says that 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 book was written, names were written in that book before the foundation of the world. So if your name isn't in the book, you will worship the beast, that anti-God embodiment of evil. And those whose name is in the Lamb's book of life will not worship the beast. That's what proves your name is in the book. You don't worship the beast. You're not anti-God. You worship Christ. So do you believe? Do you believe Christ came to this earth, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the dead on the third day? Do you follow him faithfully? If that's true for you, then rest assured your name is in that book. Now, it it may be that the works of a Christian in those other books of deeds reflect our faith and that those deeds are confirmation of our faith. But the emphasis here in this passage is that our deeds are not enough, that the only thing that rescues us is that our name must be written in the Lamb's book of life. Professor Beale helps us with this. He says, what is it about the book of life which spares them? He says the fuller title for the book is the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. The life granted them in association with the book comes from their identification with the lamb's righteous deeds and especially with his death, which implies likewise that they are identified with his resurrection life. They do not suffer judgment for their evil deeds, Because Jesus, who is the Lamb, has already suffered it for them. He was slain on their behalf. The Lamb acknowledges before God all who are written in the book and who are identified with his righteousness and his death. And so so we find our passage coming to an end. And all people, great, small, presidents, custodians, The aged, the young, men, women, they're standing before this great throne and only one thing matters is your name in that book. So we know the answer to that question by whom we worship, whom we love and serve and follow. And if you're willing to say yes to Christ today, then that's evidence that your name is in that book, that it was written before the foundation of the world. In love, God wrote your name there so that you could believe on this day. Will you say yes to Christ as Savior and King today? Let's pray. Oh God, these are things... They're too much for us. They terrify us. They sober us. They confuse us. And yet they are life to us. There is life and hope here. And so, Lord, I pray above all things that those now who are longing for life 
with you would say yes to Jesus now. Yes to his death for their sins. Yes to faith in his resurrection and to newness of life that lasts into eternity. God, grant faith. Grant confidence. Grant hope. And Lord, encourage us all. Encourage us all with the hope of the spread of the good news of Jesus. With the hope of the fate of our friends and family who have gone before us. Encourage us, God, with the way this story ends. And we look forward to that day. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? Let's worship Christ together.